Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sara Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host, Sara Davison, shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sara Davison. Welcome back to the show. And today, my guest is Heather Kent. Heather is a registered psychotherapist with a background in trauma assessment and treatment and is the number one Amazon bestselling author of the books, I Left My Toxic Relationship, Now What? and Heal from Your Narcissist Ex. Much of her professional practice is focused on helping clients through the process of recovering from the trauma of abusive relationships. So I am super excited to welcome Heather Kent to the show. Welcome, Heather. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm really excited because this is one of my favorite topics. So before we get started, please do tell my listeners a little bit about you and what you do. I'm Canadian, and so I am actually from the east coast of Canada, from Nova Scotia. And I was a former teacher, and now I am a registered psychotherapist. So I went back to get my master's in psychology and in counseling. And so that is sort of the shift that I've done as a result of the experience and things that have happened to me personally. So I am myself a survivor of toxic relationships and narcissistic abuse, more specifically. So part of my sort of passion and excitement around this topic comes from uh, my own experience and kind of what I learned through that. And then also, I was so shocked to see how many people showed up in my private practice going through these same situations and kind of in these relationships and not knowing how to navigate or what's happening, how to get out, what to do after. And so it was so shocking to me to see the number of people who were suffering and going through this at the same, you know, like I did. And so that's really what motivated me and kind of inspired me to write books about this topic because I'm like, wow, this problem is much bigger than just, you know, me (laughs) or the clients that have shown up in this tiny little town. And so, yeah, that's, that's sort of my, what's the word evolution or progress towards the work that I'm doing now and in my forties. And so, yeah, I have kind of combined, you know, my passion for teaching and my passion for helping people into developing this therapeutic work. Obviously, trauma recovery and PTSD healing is the main focus of the work that I do, um, because coming out of these relationships, of course, is quite often the, the impact that that has had on us, whether we realize it or not. I certainly didn't know it at the time. I knew that I didn't feel good, but I didn't know what I was going through specifically at the time. And so I also feel like I could have benefited from having someone to help me through who really understood it, who had experience with it, who, you know, had a training and background in it. And so that is, again, kind of what inspires me to do the work that I'm doing. That's amazing. And I do agree with you. It is something that when I started to specialize in this area that you don't really know, but so many other people are going through it. And very often they don't realize what they're in whilst they're in the middle of that relationship. And and a lot of the time it's as they come out, they start to realize just how bad it was and the impact on them. So yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying there. So can you tell us a little bit more about your story and what you went through to get to this point now? 
Oh, absolutely. So my story begins in my first year at university, actually. So I was quite young. I was 19 um, at the end of that year, which is when I ended up dating this person. And this person was not a new person to me. I had known him for six years previous. We actually came from the same town and ended up at the same university 3,000 kilometers away, ironically. Uh, yeah, super random. And I knew him previously to be, you know, not a great guy, kind of a player, kind of a jerk to girls in high school. But um, as we spent time together, you know, in this university town far away from home, I got to see, of course, a different side. And he presented a very different side to me. And I was young and very naive and didn't really know the warning signs at that point. And so finally, after many months of him kind of pursuing, will you go out with me? Will you go out with me? I finally caved. And so at the beginning, of course, everything was super fantastic. He was lots of fun. He was very attentive. He was over the top. It was very intense. Wanting to spend time, all of the declarations of love and futuristic goals and all of that stuff. And again, as a 19-year-old, what did I know? I didn't know anything. And so I got very easily sucked in. And he's very charming and charismatic and the life of the party and, you know, really good at um, public perception of being a good guy because, you know, volunteers and coaches and does all that sort of stuff. So, but very quickly that all disappeared, you know, privately, of course, when we were out in public, he was that person, but, you know, together at home, it, it became abusive very quickly, but I had not really had any previous experience with abuse. Um, you know, I was lucky that I had a, a pretty stable upbringing. So I really didn't know what to look for, or I hadn't been exposed to that kind of toxicity before. And so as it happened, it got uh, lots of devaluing, lots of degrading, lots of um, comparing me, comparing me to his previous sexual partners that he had had. And, you know, that very much that narrative of not being good enough, that underlying, never those words were spoken, but that was the underlying kind of message, right, that you receive. And yeah, lots of you know, back and forth. And like, he would be cold, he would kind of push me away. And then when he could feel me coming, starting to pull away, then he would all of a sudden, you know, hoover me back in with the over the top, you know, the love bombing and just sprinkling enough of that to keep me hooked, right? To keep it going. But we went around and around in this cycle quite often. He was uh, unfaithful. He cheated on me multiple times in front of me and he still would deny it. Like he couldn't take responsibility for things that he was doing even though I had like actually caught him doing it, um, he would deny it and deflect and blame me. And how dare I, you know, invade his privacy, et cetera. So yeah, it was, it was really bad. He also had a pretty significant um, porn addiction, which I, as I, you know, later found addiction kind of goes hand in hand with these types of personalities. So we were engaged to be married at that time. And finally I did find the strength to break it off. However, that was not the end, as it should have been. So for six months or so, I was um, free from the relationship. And I did a lot of personal growth. I obviously went to therapy. But then when I was at home for Christmas time that year, I remember that we're from the same hometown. He actually showed up at my parents' house and put on this play and performance of his lifetime to, you know, profess his undying love and apologize and say that he's changed and he's gone to therapy, et cetera, et cetera. You know, he can't imagine life without me. And he put this performance on in front of my entire family because it was 
equally, if not more so important for him to win over my family again too. And so we ended up getting back together as a result of that. And we were engaged again. And then we got married. And although he wasn't overtly cheating anymore, the, you know, psychological abuse and manipulation was, yeah, really, really difficult and made things very hard every day. And I used to kind of avoid being at home. I used to dread coming home. I used to park in the driveway and just kind of like, like steal myself and to prepare for what I was going to go into. Was it going to be a good day? Was it going to be a bad day? Was he going to be angry and everything? Was he going to be sweet and nice? I really, it was like a Russian roulette. Every time I came home, I never knew what it was going to be like. Um, I was blamed for everything. I was, and I really truly believed that everything that he was unhappy about was my fault and that it was my responsibility to fix it. And so, you know, something as innocuous as what would you like for supper? How dare I ask? You know, he's so tired of having to answer this question. I, I should just know and I should just, you know, figure it out. And he would threaten to leave. Like that was his go-to from the beginning. Whenever I challenged him on something or tried to call him out or hold him accountable, he would threaten to leave the relationship or end the relationship, pack his bags, throw things, rip clothing, destroy things that were important to me that were given to me by, you know, friends or family. And so it got to the point where he was trying to force me to have children, according to his timeline which I, something very visceral deep inside my body was like resisting this idea. And so I said, no. And then he tried to get my family involved, coerced me into having children according to his timeline, because again, they didn't know what was going on because I wasn't able to tell them because I couldn't deal with them hating him again, because now we were married, right? And so they didn't know about the abuse and what was happening. So he tried to convince them to get me on side in terms of having children. And when I still resisted, you know, things got deteriorated quickly. And it came to the point where he phoned my family who were in a different country at that time and told them that I had lost my mind. I'd had a psych, like a psychiatric break that I had cheated on him and that I was having sex with multiple men and that he had proof and evidence and that he could prove it. You know, I needed desperate, I desperately needed like serious and so my family went ballistic. They thought that I had lost my mind. He did this while I was at work. And so when I tried to call them just to say, hi, they refused to talk to me on the phone. They wouldn't get on the phone. They, they were so angry with me. They thought that I had you know, betrayed him and behaved terribly. And I had no idea why they wouldn't talk to me. And so it was so confusing. And I was very de deeply alone in that time. And it wasn't until a couple of weeks later when my sister finally agreed to get on the phone where like the holes in his, like this, it came out what he told them. It was so shocking and appalling. And my poor mom still hasn't recovered, you know, 12 years later from, you know, her feelings of having abandoned me in that time. And, and I said to her, like, of course, this is not your fault. Like you were manipulated just like I had been for years, right? Like this is what they do. But he had never, ever called them back again to apologize or set things straight or anything. That was the last time he spoke to them was to tell them that make up those lies about me to try and, um, yeah, isolate me further from any kind of support network that I had. Um, so we went to couples therapy and the couples therapist actually took me aside and said that I needed to leave, that this was not healthy and that I needed to find a different path. And so that was 
in a nutshell, <laughs> my experience. Wow. Well, thank goodness that the therapist said that and pulled you aside. And because it is very hard to see. I mean, goodness me, you've been through so much in that relationship. I mean, I guess there's so many of the looking back with hindsight, classic symptoms and signs oh, yeah. of of abuse there. But when you're in it, it's very hard, isn't it, to to recognize, so especially like especially as you said that you came from a family where that you know was a very loving, friendly, warm family. So no, none of that, no, no experience of that. And I think that's very difficult when you've never experienced it. So why do you think that we stay in those relationships, given everything you went through? Why were you still there? Why did it take a therapist to say you should leave? That's a good question. Well, and this is the, this is the thing that a lot of my clients ask me too. Like, why did I stay so long? Like, what's wrong with me? How couldn't I see this? You know, and these are things that I said to myself, I'm like, how, how did I not, like, how did I do this? And, you know, I had friends telling me like, this isn't okay. You know, when he abandoned me in a snowstorm downtown with no coat and no way to get home because he was embarrassed because I was upset that the people lost my coat at the restaurant and he left me with no money and he left me downtown. And like my, my friends saw this happen, but I would make excuses for him because he would find a way. This is where they, the psychological abuse comes in and the gaslighting comes in where they twist it around to make you believe that you are somehow to blame for their bad behavior, right? And so you really do feel like you're going crazy and you're losing touch of reality and like you're questioning your sanity because they say things to you like, oh, I never said that. That never happened. You're crazy. Where did you come up with that? You're overreacting. You're too sensitive. Are you PMSing? I only did or said that because you did or said this. I would have never had to do that if you hadn't have done this, right? And so this is like the constant barrage of gaslighting and psychological abuse that goes on that really makes you, well, maybe I didn't remember that, right? Maybe I, did I misremember that? Or maybe that didn't happen? Did I dream it? Like you really start to question. And of course they accuse you of doing the things that they do, you know, cheating, lying, whatever it is, fill in the blank. And so, and so you're constantly trying to defend yourself and trying to make sense of what's happening. And the whole time, all you're doing is trying to get back to that initial, amazing, beautiful time that made you fall in love with them in the first place, because that's what you signed up for, right? That's what, that's what I signed up for. And so you're, you're desperately trying to get back to that thing that you were promised, that thing that you thought your life was going to be, the beautifulness of it at the beginning when everything was great, right? You're trying to always get back there and you're clinging on to these memories so desperately trying to figure out what you're doing wrong, which you're not doing anything wrong, but you don't know this. And you're trying to figure it out and you're trying to do whatever you can to get back there. Then when you get these moments where they do, you know, trickle you with that idealizing and a little bit of love bombing, just to, you know, just keep it, keep it going. You're just like, oh, finally, like, this is exactly, this is what it's supposed to be. This is why I'm in this relationship. And you do develop a love for them. They're also very purposeful in the type of people that they choose to be with because they look for people who are highly empathic. They look for people who are excellent at forgiveness, who are very compassionate, who are loyal, 
who are, you know, supportive and loving, of course, as a, in my case, as a narcissist, they desperately need that, right? All the time, constant validation. And so they look for people who are, have these wonderful qualities, but these wonderful qualities also make us more susceptible to being manipulated and taken advantage of by abusive people. And so I also had this sense of loyalty to him. You know, we were married, he was my husband. And, you know, I would also like explain things away like, oh, he's stressed because of this, or he's angry because of this, you know, horrible thing that's going on, you know, at school or at work, or, you know, I would always come up with, there would always be a reason to explain his behavior. Um, And so these are the things that you start to rationalize And over time, you normalize, like this becomes your normal. And in my case, I didn't have a frame of reference really, right? I had had a couple of boyfriends in high school, but nothing really serious. He was my first really serious long-term relationship. And I had no frame of reference either. And so as you become kind of programmed, right? And it's happened slowly over time. You know, I tell, to answer the question, how did, how, why did I do, why, I don't even, this doesn't make sense. So I say to people, if your partner behaved on date number one, the way that they behaved to you at the end, would you book date number two? No, no. (laughs) Of course not. Of course not. And because you would cut and run for the hills, right? But that's not the way it works. And so this is a very slow boil. If you're, um. I'm an East Coast person. I don't know if you guys like to eat lobster in the UK, but we love lobster over here. So it's like, you know, throwing a lobster straight into the pot of boiling water. That lobster is going to immediately know that something is seriously wrong, right? But if you put the lobster in cold water and turn up the heat, the, the temperature change is slow. And so they don't notice it until it's, you know, they're, it's too late to make something happens. And so, you know, I liken it to that lobster in the cold water, a relationship with an abusive person, with a narcissist, with whoever is is like that lobster in the cold water because first everything seems great. Everything's fine, comfortable, wonderful. And it slowly changes over time. That's why we stay. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I totally agree with everything you're saying. And and having gone through similar in my own personal life, I, I know how difficult it is when you're in there. So for my listeners who might be listening now and thinking, maybe I'm in an abusive relationship, but I'm not quite sure. What can they do to get more clarity around that? This is an excellent question. And so I've come up with a little bit of a, you know, is my... And it doesn't necessarily have to be a partner. So relationships can be abusive, regardless of whether it's an intimate partner relationship or if whether it's with, you know, a parent or a coworker or a boss or a sibling. And so I come up with a little bit of a, you know, is my partner or someone in my life a narcissist or like an abusive person test? And so these are the questions you want to kind of ask yourself. Does this person experience an exaggerated sense of self-importance? Do they require constant admiration from other people? Do they expect total compliance from others? Now, this is the hallmark piece. Do they struggle to recognize the emotions and needs of other people? And what makes narcissistic personality disorder different from other personality disorders is the empathy piece, the inability to experience empathy or understand or think about how other people feel. 
So the lack of empathy is really that hallmark piece. So does this person ever have a hard time recognizing the emotions or needs of others? Okay, I have a question. When you say that, it sounds like it's almost the reason that, well, they don't get how much they're upsetting you. So they don't know. So they're not actually being as unkind as it appears to be. Well, you can tell them how you're feeling and they still don't care, right? So even though they know you're upset, they're still going to carry on doing it. Well, it It doesn't factor in. It doesn't matter to them. They don't consider it because the only thing that matters to them is what they're going through and what they want and what they're getting out of it, right? And so for them, for a narcissist, the ends always justify the means, regardless of how it makes other people feel. They just don't care. It's just not part of the consideration process. And even if they are made aware of it, it still doesn't factor in. It just doesn't matter. And so that's a really, really big piece. Um, Does this person ever expect, you know, special treatment or favors from other people? Do they experience heightened jealousy? Are they jealous about you or people that you spend time with? Are they jealous about the success of other people? Do they do comparing themselves to other people? Do they insist on having the best of everything? So like great new car, nice house, flashy clothes, whatever that may be. And do they assume that other people are jealous of them? So those are kind of the key questions. And if you've answered yes to more than like one of those, well... I know my listeners are going to be saying, I answered yes to all of those. Yeah. So if that's the case, then you're likely dealing with an abusive personality. You're in a toxic relationship with someone. And, you know, there are things that you can do about that. Again, like one of the other reasons that we stay is something called the trauma bond, where we are trauma bonded to this person and we develop this kind of codependence, very toxic codependence. And so a trauma bond, I liken it to, Stockholm syndrome. So if people are familiar with that means it's, you know, when someone is kidnapped and they develop, you know, feelings of like kindness and compassion towards their captor and their abuser, right? And they don't want something bad to happen to them, you know, when they get rescued, it's very similar. So we become trauma bonded to this, to our abusive person, right? And again, like we want to protect them. We don't want something bad to happen to them. And so we end with this cognitive dissonance, like this confusion that we're constantly like, I love this person, but they're so mean to me, but it can't be abused because they don't hit me necessarily. It's all very confusing. And so this is, again, part of what keeps us stuck there for so long. But when we answer these questions, it helps with clarity, I think, to really get a picture of what's happening. Are you struggling to cope with your breakup or divorce? Are you feeling devastated, heartbroken, sad and anxious? If so, please know that you are not alone and there is help available. Sarah Davison, best known as the Divorce Coach, and her team of accredited coaches are here to offer you the support and guidance you need to navigate all areas of your breakup, take back your control and start feeling happy again. Sarah will show you how to dial down those controlling negative emotions, unhook from your ex, get back in the driving seat of your life and design a future you are excited to live. Sarah has a range of solutions to support any breakup, including free guides, one-to-one coaching, 
her Heartbreak to Happiness virtual retreats, live retreats, and you can even train to be a breakup and divorce coach with Sarah too. Visit www.saradavison.com today and start to feel happy again. When you are in those relationships and maybe you're starting to get some clarity about what's going on, are there safe ways to leave? Because obviously if you suddenly say, I'm leaving, then things can escalate pretty quickly. I know in the UK, the statistics are very shocking that 30% of domestic homicides happen within three months of leaving a controlling abusive partner. I don't yeah. know if the stats are the same where you are. Pretty um, similar. Pretty similar. Yeah. Yeah, it is very grim and very dismal. And so it's important to kind of set up a bit of a safety plan. You know, if you've decided that you're ready, you're wanting to leave. Um, obviously, yeah, announcing it <laughs> is not going to go well. And I mean, it really is a situation by situation kind of, it depends on what's going on. And so it's important to be able to have something lined up before you go. And depending on how dangerous you feel the situation may be, you may not say anything at all. And you may just leave kind of when they're not expecting you to. But again, like it really depends on the situation. But in my case, I had to very clearly state that I was leaving. I had my bag packed already. And after I said that I was leaving, I took the bag and I left like within five minutes. And I went to a friend. I was homeless for like six months when I left. And I was, you know, couch surfing and staying with friends. And I ended up being able to house it for someone who was traveling. And so like whatever you can figure out, that's what needs to happen at the beginning. And it feels terrible and it's very scary. And then you start to question and second guess, did I make the wrong decision? This is too hard because they make you also believe that you can't survive without them. What will you ever do without them, et cetera. And so it does all of those scary kind of fears come into play as well. But it's important to have something lined up before you leave. And in some cases, you might have to squirrel some money away slowly, that kind of thing. And so it's, you do really do have to come up with a plan depending on your situation, whether you're financially dependent on them too. So there's a lot of moving parts to that, to answer that question. And I know that it's very common. Like you said in your story, you're in, you're engaged and then you left and then you went back again. And it is very common, isn't it? For people very to common. get sucked back into that relationship again. Yeah. And we call that hoovering actually. So what they do is, you know, once, cause they can't admit that they've been rejected is really the problem, right? Because then that means that there's some inherent flaw with them, which their ego and fragile self, like that insecure self, cannot tolerate. Like their whole image of themselves would just crumble if they accepted that there's something flawed with them that would cause someone to reject them. So they can't tolerate that. And then once you do reject them, well, then you become the enemy because now you've outed them for who they really are and how dare you, right? How dare you? And so, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really interesting to kind of see and they do, they suck you back in when we call this hoovering and it, it's the over the topness, the love bombing, the you're amazing. I'm so sorry. They tell you everything that they know you need to hear in order for them to get the result that they want, which is for you to come back, right? They don't mean anything that they're saying, but they know exactly what is needed, what is required to be done in order for you to come back. And so they do it. 
and obviously it works. It works very well. And we get sucked back into going around that cycle of narcissistic abuse. Again, love bombing, devaluing, discard. Gosh, you put it so well and so concisely. I'm loving it. And I know it's going to be helping a lot of my listeners today. So also, I just am fascinated by the fact that when you come out of these relationships, you really have lost a complete sense of who you are because you've obviously sacrificed a lot. It's not just compromises. These unhealthy relationships take you to sacrifice. Sacrifice in so many areas. So you may have lost touch with people. You may have lost touch with what you enjoy because you haven't been able to do it for a long time. You haven't had the choice. Maybe your self-confidence, self-esteem has taken a complete battering emotionally because you've just never been able to make your own decisions or you've always been wrong or what a silly idea, as you were saying earlier. So all these things compound. What are the impacts that, you know, trauma, the trauma, I guess, that it is causes on people and what can they do about that? Yeah, so kind of the outcome of surviving an emotionally abusive relationship is really significant. <laughs> like the impact is significant. And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand. You know, so first of all, people might be like, well, what are the signs of this type of abuse? Like, what does that look like? Well, I mentioned gaslighting and and what that sounds like, right? But there's, you know, the lack of accountability, blaming others and, you know, denial, like denying it or deflecting or like putting the blame on somebody else intimidation tactics, threatening tactics, try and get them to do what you want. So in my case, you would threaten to leave. You know, if you don't have kids with me, I'm going to leave. You don't do this. I'm going to leave. You don't do this. I'm going to tell your parents, whatever it was. Mocking, you know, verbally abusive behaviors. And then again, that cycle. And so the impact of all of that over years has a very, very significant physiological shift in your brain. Actually, it's quite fascinating. Um, Your brain chemically and physiologically has changed as a result of prolonged exposure to trauma. And so we see this in soldiers a lot because of war. We see this in abusive relationships. We see this often um, in uh, frontline workers with healthcare, for example, specifically in the pandemic. This happens over the course of being exposed to trauma over the long term. And so what happens is that we have this part of our brain the hippocampus that is responsible for memory and organization and and like making sense of things and putting things in order, that part of our brain has actually shrunk over time. And so it's really common for people who are survivors to complain about having a terrible memory, not being able to remember things, not being able to like make sense of things, forgetting important details about major things that happened. Everything's very fragmented. And that's because this part of your brain that's responsible for all that has gotten smaller. And then this other part of our brain, which is at the lower part, like in the back of our brainstem called the amygdala, which is like our primal alarm system, right? That has kept us alive since we were cave people. Run, run, the tigers are coming. Um, That part of our brain that kind of sounds the alarm that danger is here and we need to do something to stay safe. That part of our brain actually gets bigger. And so you have an overactive, hyperactive alarm system and a diminished, smaller, like memory organization part of your brain. And then when the alarm system goes off, the front part of your brain actually goes offline. And this is the part that's responsible for reason, evaluating consequences, understanding information, synthesizing details, assessing whether you're actually in danger. That's not accessible. 
And so you have this like constant hypervigilant, like over the top, you know, deer in the headlights, fight, flight, freeze response going on over and over and over again as a result of being exposed to this all the time. And then we have also this sort of learned helplessness where we really believe and feel like there's nothing we can do and that we're, we're trapped and there's nothing we can do to make, make a change. We have, of course, like I mentioned, that cognitive dissonance where we're really confused and conflicted, especially right initially as we leave, like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. I can't do this. What am I thinking? I love him. This is, I, this is a big mistake. I need to go back. I need to fix it. And he's also the source of the abuse, right? So it's very conflicting and confusing. Um, so we call that cognitive dissonance. And of course, the trauma bonding, right? That emotional attachment that makes it really hard and difficult to move on. And like you mentioned, that low self-worth, like zero, zero self-esteem because you've just been basically battered emotionally for, in some cases, decades. It depends. It might be 10 months. It might be 10 years. The impact is no less significant because it, it really does not take long for this to start to have a dramatic impact on your brain and on your mental health. Fascinating information, especially about your brain parts shrinking and other things taking over. And I, I know a lot of my clients talk about memory loss and not being able to, to function as well afterwards. So yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. So thank you for sharing that with us. So does that change back? Can you, yes. can you heal yourself from this? And what's Absolutely. your advice on that? The good news is yes, 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 absolutely. Hey. Um, and it, and it, but it is, you know, it's a journey. It's a process. It really is like a healing and recovery journey from, from abuse, right? It, it's, you know, a lot of people don't realize that coming out of these relationships, they're actually struggling with PTSD symptoms and complex PTSD. And most people don't realize they're like, oh, PTSD, that's just for soldiers. No, again, it's that prolonged exposure to traumatic experience right? Where you don't feel safe. It's all around safety. And when we don't feel safe, safety is one of the basic needs that we have on this planet, right? Food, water, safety. And when we don't have safety, nothing else, like everything is so destabilized, right? And so that's really what PTSD is, is that kind of impact of not having safety. So what's the difference between PTSD and then complex PTSD? Hmm. So Complex PTSD is basically the similar symptoms, but prolonged. So you've been feeling this way. It's been, you know, it's kind of an ongoing thing. So in some cases, people might have PTSD over a single event, like they witnessed something terrible happening. They were attacked and it's like a one event phenomenon and they can develop PTSD symptoms from that event. And then they can do work to kind of heal through those symptoms and, and process the trauma and, and be okay. But complex PTSD happens again from that prolonged exposure to the trauma over and over and over again. And so these PTSD symptoms are very long-standing, very deep-rooted. They've been happening for a very long time, in some cases years. And so it just, it's that, again, it's that chronic kind of exposure gosh that makes a lot of sense and I guess if you've been in a relationship like that for a long time 
Um, and then you get out and you start to realise, I think it, quite often it hits home once you're out a lot harder what you've been yeah. through when you have your freedom and you're, you know, you're, it's liberating to come out in a, in a, in a lot of ways. But if, if you've got children and you are still having to manage relationships, maybe you're going through a divorce, maybe yeah. there's a legal battle going on, you're, you're not really out of their control because they're still able to control a lot. So when you say post-traumatic stress, there's no post about it. It's still going on afterwards. And quite often post-separation abuse kicks in and they're still controlling you, but just in different ways. Is this yeah, what you mind? Oh, absolutely. And so I actually, in my most recent book where I specifically talk about narcissistic abuse and recovery from that PTSD and trauma, um, I actually have a whole section on parenting issues with an abusive partner. And, and so how do you manage that? How do you navigate that? And how do you mitigate and minimize as much as possible any ability for them to continue to abuse you and control you? And it is very doable. But like they will do whatever they can to try to undercut and undermine and control and use the children as. And it's interesting because I'm actually living that a little bit now with my current partner. He is so fantastic, wonderful human being. But his ex-wife is actually a narcissistic, abusive uh, woman. And so they have two children. And so we're dealing with the parenting issues and the, con the, the need to still have contact with her around the children and just the ways in which she manipulates and uses the children is infuriating. And also, you know, for me also textbook and a little bit fascinating to see how plastic of a narcissist she actually is. And just, she just, she's so predictable, which is helpful because I can say like, this is what's going to happen. And this is what we're going to do about it kind of thing. But navigating it is, it can do your head in if you don't know <laughs> how to handle it. It's also, you know, post-traumatic stress, I guess post means after, but you're still in it. So sometimes, you know, recovery, I think, can be harder, if not, I mean, not impossible, but slower um, yeah. if you're, they're still there. You know, if you can get out of a relationship and never see your ex again. No and contact is absolutely the ideal scenario, of course. Um, but that's not to say that recovery from PTSD isn't possible. And then like, inoculating yourself from future abuse so that every time you interact with them, you're not breaking into sweats and you're not panicking and like wondering, oh God, you know, when the phone dings, what, what's going to happen now? What are they after? What are they saying? There's very specific ways that you can set it up and have it set up legally so that you don't end up in that abusive situation where you're like, it's, you know, you never know what kind of bombardment you're going to come at. They're going to come at you with next. And I actually dealt with families in the court system, going through court cases. Like I've been able to kind of successfully set people up in such a way through the divorce process where communication is limited. There is only one method of communication and it is through an app. And that app is legally binding and can be used in court. Like, and so it really limits the ability of the abusive partner to control the situation. What's the name of the app? There's a few different ones. The most popular one that I've come across is called Our Family Wizard. And it's used in the UK, in Canada, and in Australia. And I believe it's actually in the United States too. And they're all, it's all um, like court recognized in terms of the, the legal process as a admissible a great idea 
yeah, yeah it's a great idea I've seen I've seen that use over here in the UK and it's it's one way I guess of like you say inoculating yourself a little bit from some yeah. of the challenges it's, that, that it's you're just it's limiting the ability for them to access you and that's really what it's about right if you can't go no contact we limit and we we go gray rock right where we only respond very basic logistics focused non-emotional yes or no answers we do not engage in any kind of back and forth we do not react to any kind of diatribe that you get you just don't respond to anything that isn't specific to logistics of children or you know joint owned assets or whatever it is you only are focused on the logistics nothing else and when you are a boring responder they're not getting what they need and so they back off eventually well that is great advice if you can't go no contact be a boring responder i love that i really love that okay so just to end on giving everyone listening some hope what are your top two tips for helping you yourself to heal coming out of that toxic relationship so number one is to develop a bit of a like a social support system and quite often what happens is that you become isolated over time in these relationships and so doing what you can to kind of reconnect with old friends or family or you know even engaging in new activities like going to a you know outside yoga class for example where you maybe can connect with other people who have a similar interest and that you can kind of start to develop a bit of a support network and absolutely engaging in some kind of trauma therapy 100 um, percent is is going to be really important because they can again help you and you want to look for someone who has like a background in trauma assessment trauma treatment like so that they understand ptsd they understand and even better if they know about abusive relationships because that is very specific and so getting yourself therapeutic support getting yourself social support two really important things that you can do and there's lots of availability and different options out there for people. Yes, help exists. So tell us if my listeners now want to contact you, reach out to you, how can they find us? And also tell us where they can get your both your best-selling books. Where can they find oh, those? And yes, absolutely. So actually my books are available um, for free to download and you can get them directly off of my website. And my website is very easy. It's my name. So it's heatherjkent.com. And then there's a resources section where you can download each of the books for free. And then also, if you feel like maybe this is a situation that you need some more guidance or support with, um, I'd be happy to meet you. I also offer free consultations for folks. And there's a link to book, you can a link to my calendar to book a time to meet with me for a therapy consultation as well. Available on Zoom for people listening in different countries. Yeah, so I do all of my work virtually, of course, with the pandemic, everything has moved online and it's kind of where things I think are going to stay um, because again, it's just a lot more accessible for people and it allows me to, uh, to you know, reach out to people who are anywhere. Absolutely. Well, I've just got one more question for you, Heather. My podcast is called Heartbreak to Happiness and I always ask my guests this question because I think it's really important to know what happiness is for you. So even when you're going through, say, a toxic relationship or recovering from that trauma, you can stop and enjoy some happiness along that way. So what is happiness for you? 
So for me, happiness is many things. And in my healing journey at the beginning, I actually found a lot of happiness in doing humanitarian work. And so I ended up moving to a developing country and I ended up living there for almost two years, engaged in humanitarian work through Rotary International. So happiness for me was doing something meaningful to help others who were not able to help themselves due to no other reason than being born where they were born. And so that brings me a great deal of happiness. And the other piece of happiness that uh, has resonated for me is working with animals. And so actually in my trauma therapy practice, I used to offer animal assisted therapy as part of uh, my work uh, when I was meeting clients in person. And so I actually have trained service dogs who engage in trauma recovery work with my clients. And so having relationships with animals is a wonderful way to find positive, uh, unconditional love and, uh, you know, secure relationships with another living being. Oh, I absolutely agree with that. My little puppy has helped me through so many things. So I absolutely agree with that. Giving back, contributing, the humanitarian work you mentioned is such a lovely thing to do. And quite often when we do things like that, we think we may be helping other people, but actually we ourselves get so much of a boost. Absolutely. It is the what is, it is the most wonderful gift that I never thought, you know, I never saw how much I was going to get back from the work that I ended up doing. And I always say that, you know, I came down here to, to contribute and to, you know, help make a difference. And what ended up being given to me was a gift beyond anything I could have ever imagined. So yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing such incredible information and for being such a fabulous guest. Thank you, Heather, for joining us. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'd be happy to come back again at any time. And it just it was such a great opportunity to get to meet with you and speak with you. And uh, yeah, I hope to connect with you again soon. Thank you so much. You will definitely be back because this has been amazing and very helpful episode. So thank you so much. That's it for today's episode. Do head on over to heatherjkent.com to book your free consultation and also download one or both of Heather's best-selling books, I Left My Toxic Relationship, Now What? or Heal From Your Narcissistic Ex. So check them out. Brilliant reads. And thank you so much, Heather, for joining us. And I look forward to you joining me on my next episode. That's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to win a free ticket to one of Sara's virtual retreats. The retreats are a transformative combination of live webinars with Sara herself, coupled with empowering online video programs designed to help you cope better with your breakup and start feeling happy again. For more details, head on over to heartbreaktohappinesspodcast.com where you can also get a copy of Sara's free gift. Thank you and join us again on the next episode for another dose of Heartbreak to Happiness. Oh,